Hi, welcome to the Express Results Bulletin for Season 2, Episode 6. Uh, just before we get on to announcing the results, do need to tell you that we're being all modern and with it, and we have joined threads along with half of Instagram and half of Twitter. So you can actually find us now on threads, same handle as Twitter, at which decade tops. And we've already got a few followers, so seems worth doing. I'm going to join threads in that case. <laughs> I mean, mainly just to get away from all the closet fascists on Twitter. But, you know, that'll be fine. Well, at the moment, it's a bit like the first week in every series of Big Brother, when everyone's still being really nice to each other before all the <laughs> hatred has set in and people lose their minds. Long may that continue. Nick, you're on threads, aren't you? It's like the QAnon people haven't found it yet. Have they? So it reminds me of how Twitter used to be with just people suggesting that you follow other people. And Yeah, it is very early days of Twitter. The social media managers at some of the big brands, honest to God, think all their Christmases have come at once, right? They are having enormous fun. Asking open questions to build engagement. My God, they've all been taught the same thing. All of social media that was great in the first year, wasn't it? Because you're like, oh, this actually works. The internet used to work lovely and it brought us all together, you know, before it became a mire of hatred. Yeah, it's gone back to that spirit of optimistic utopianism that we haven't had in a long time and probably won't have by the end of the month. But hey, enjoying it for now. Right. I have some results. I don't think it's going to surprise anyone to discover that in last place, firmly in last place, earning minus one points for the 2010s, we have Shout. By Shout for England, featuring Dizzy Rascal and James Corden. We have some comments. Jeff didn't mind it, actually. Jeff says, the frustration of being an English football fan is all there. Come on, pull your finger out. James, centres of sound, a bit more balanced here. On one hand, Dizzy begging the England squad not to let us down again is very funny. And the no diggity sample works perfectly. On the other hand, we have James Corden. While Asta says, Shout is a terrific tune, and to see it abused like this, what a shame. Gordon has acquired a reputation for not being a very nice person, so when I see him being charming on TV, I am reminded that he's acting. And same with Dizzy Rascal, also been proved to be not a very nice person. So well, At least Dizzy Rascal was proved in a court of law. Why, what have I missed about James Corden? Or is it just that he's a tool? Asta sent me a link to a very ill-advised subreddit. There are reddits called Ask Me Anything. And in the early days of James Corden's US chat show, he and his production team uh, <laughs> launched themselves onto Reddit. Hi, we're really excited about James Corden's new chat show. We're going to be here to answer all your questions. Ask me anything. And Corden got absolutely roasted. Oh, I mean, there was a bit of trolling in there, but some nasty stuff came out. Like he had, They had a meeting about the previous writer's strike and he was saying, well, they should pay writers less so they could get him more script assistance for himself personally. So that's a massive mark against him. Also, there's been terrible behaviour in restaurants and um, a horrible story about him being on the flight and completely ignoring his wife and his crying baby and pretending they weren't there. It was all that sort of thing, you know. Sound evidence that he's a wrong one, if ever there was any. I'm not pulling the lever on him based upon that. <laughs> it doesn't sound particularly nice, but in a world of, you know, media wrong that sounds like someone who's a tool rather than, you know, the next Hitler. 
But he's also, he's like the opposite of Christopher Nolan in the sense that, I think I said this last time, everything he touches, he makes worse. Whilst I don't agree with you, I think that's really funny. So in many ways, I do agree with you. It was entertaining. Right, into the Met Zone. First up in the Met Zone, representing the 1960s, it's Handyman by Jimmy Jones. David says, the James Taylor version, which improves the melody, would have been my number one. Alex says, Jimmy almost made it into my one-point zone, as having heard a few toe curlers from early 1960s Britain, the US stuff holds up well. But Malcolm the Break Doctor simply says, pleasant enough, but doesn't float my boat. Which, um, looking at the, the few other comments we had on Jimmy Jones, there weren't many comments on Jimmy Jones at all. They were basically along Malcolm's line. Yeah, nothing to see here, essentially. The current Marvel comic series of Handyman is excellent. He's joined the Avengers and they're fighting some sort of internecine war with a, a foreign species. But, ah, oh, it's great. OK. Also in the Met Zone, scoring exactly the same number of points as Jimmy Jones. In fact, we have, sorry, Nick, representing the 1990s, Roxette with It Must Have Been Love. Now, Malcolm says... I do like a good power ballad, and I enjoyed the vigorous back and forth over this one, as it were, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Alex says, a national ban on power ballads could be the very last throw of the dice for Rishi Sunak. And as a voter who would very carefully weigh up their abolition versus stuff like people relying on food banks and total collapse of the NHS, I'm surprised that I don't dislike this more. David says... (laughs) Wait, wait, let's deal with that. Like, I mean, if the Tories banned power ballads, now this is not against power ballads, but what would the Tories listen to? I don't think the Tories listen to anything but power ballads. <laughs> I like it's just non-stop power ballads around that. I love the notion of him going, halve inflation, save the NHS, no more REO Speedwagon. <laughs> well, it might be a pledge you could actually enact. Quick win. Populist move. It it would be a populist move. They'd win votes. That'd be a landslide as well, wouldn't it? Stop the power ballads. And that the 48% of us who like power ballads would be going, what? No, we didn't vote for this. We're going to make no power ballads work. Yeah. Send them to Rwanda. Right. David says, I'm with Mike. David says, power ballad is an oxymoron. There are no good ones. None. Oh, David, so glad you said that. I have to say, though, power ballad being an oxymoron, I think he's overstating the case. You can have a powerful ballad, surely. The abstract concept of having a big ballad that's kind of got rocky bits in it is not wrong at the conceptual stage. I just dislike it intensely at the execution stage. Right. No, if you can't name one that you like, though, then that does mean that that particular style then you are against. You couldn't name one. I've ah. been trying to think of one. Oh, God. Have you got? Have you done some research on your own mind? You taught me some homework. So I have been thinking about this. I looked through the something like Now That's What I Call 100 Power Ballads compilation that's on Spotify. They extend the concept of power ballads to a ludicrous degree. I think the actual lead track on the album is Living on a Prayer by Bon Jovi. It's not a ballad. So they they, they were even having to pad out their 100 power ballads with things that weren't power ballads to make it listenable. Anyway, so, yeah, I've got three. So last time I said, don't speak, no doubt, sticking with that. 
and I said total eclipse of the heart, Bonnie Tyler. I am going to add one if it counts. You're the expert. Does Time After Time by Cindy Lauper count as a power ballad? I think so, yeah. Well, I love that one. Now, I've just had a very, very heavy weekend in Manchester, three nights in Manchester. I went to a lot of bars and there were a couple that I heard in the bars that gave me cause for reflection. So we had What's Up by Four Non Blondes and we had Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now by Starship. And I almost added them to the list. But at the end of the day, both those tracks are tracks with big, sturdy choruses that if you're drunk in a bar, it's fun to sing along to. That is just setting the bar a little bit too low for them to make my list of good power ballads. I will defend power ballads to the day that I die. If you don't like Kaylee by Marillion, there's something wrong with you. See, I don't count that as a power ballad. Is that a power ballad? Surely it is. It's. I mean, it's a stunning song. I actually like that, but it's not a ballad. No, I think that does have enough power. And yeah, it's definitely ballady in the subject that it covers. Mm, all right. He's right, you know. I think this is uh, the next book then, 101 Power Ballads of Forever that Mike doesn't like, <laughs> but that normal people do like. I'm on the fence about Kaylee. Peter Gabriel era Genesis knockoff. Yes. Power ballads, not so sure. All right. Shall we go to the top three? In third place, earning one point for the 1980s, we have Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway with Back Together Again. James says, new to me, I agree that this sort of early 80s disco is an exciting area to explore. It's also smoothly satisfying from performance to production. Astor says, Donny Hathaway is one of soul music's biggest influences and he was dead at 33. His duets with Roberta Flack are magic. But Jeff says, I try to like music like this because I'm a bass player and it's fun to play, but it's so bland. Anything that has a horn section that sounds like a keyboard has sucked the life out of music and of me. Harsh, Jeff. Yeah, actually, I don't remember Alex saying something along the lines of, I would like it, but it just reminds me of living in Essex. Songs like that were particularly big in Essex in the early 80s. Um, <laughs> when you said it reminds me of living in Essex, I'm going, I don't know a song called Living in Essex. Oh, yeah, is that by uh, Rufus and Shaka Khan? It's what James Brown would have done if Rocky Four had been in Billericay. Those were the two best comments we had about Roberta and Donny. A lot of the other comments that I didn't include were a bit more on the Met side. I feel a bit the same as I did with Lindisfarne, Lady Eleanor. I feel people have been Philistines. It's a very accomplished piece of music. Anyway. I have forgotten about it already. I forgot we talked about it. I've forgotten how it goes, and I don't imagine I'll ever hear it again. Well, one all (laughs) in second place. Here we go. Which is it going to be? In second place, earning two points for the 2000s, Sandstorm to Root. Oh! Oh, oh sorry, Trev. I had a balloon. I've got a balloon drop here. What's <laughs> going to do with this? <laughs> um, Jeff says, almost perfect, just needed a bit more bass. Oh, if you say so. Malcolm says, If you ask anyone, they know this song, and I say nearly universally consider it as a classic, as I do. However, and this was the lone dissenting voice on Sandstorm, everybody else had it in their top three apart from James. James gave it minus one points, and here's why. 
When I first started going to nightclubs, I found them an alienating, unpleasant place, like being stuck in a lift at the circus. That was until I went to Glastonbury in 1999 and spent the weekend dancing outside the Indigo Energy Store. Since then, I've felt defensive about trance music. Maybe it sounds cheesy to many people, but in the right place and time, it deliberately plays with your mind in a very specific way. A way that doesn't gel at all with the land of white Reeboks and pints of Fosters. For this reason, I don't find Sandstorm to really be an example of trance music. It's more like the equivalent of trance music for the beer boys at the local club, the nightlife I was trying to escape. Everything about it sounds tinny and jarring to me. I can see what it's trying to do, but I just don't want it to do that. I... Trance for beer boys. Um, no, right. I mean, I as a as a laggle out myself. Does James own a cafe I can smash up? Because that'd be great. Um, I, I'll, I'll wait until my football team loses. Obviously, give it some context. But I'm pretty sure. I don't know, but I'm pretty sure Darude was one of the tunes that sort of crossed over. It wasn't a you know tune written for commercial success. That was a club tune that happened to be big. The vast majority of dance tracks are legitimate club tunes and then get big it's not production line stuff it's why there aren't many dance artists who have loads and loads of hits they've kind of got one that crosses over and then you never hear from them again and i think the it's not real trance is a bit i will say i think it's more force the floor than a lot of the ibiza trance classics i've started going back and looking over some of the trance classics to play them on a friday yeah. night so the three i went to were the three really obvious ones Paul Van Dyke for an angel, to whole meter at the Love Parade, and Energy 52, Cafe Del Mar. And I noticed with all of those, rhythmically, they're quite subtle and syncopated. It can be quite hard to find the one, the downbeat on those, where a standstorm is much more straight ahead, four to the floor. And if you're going to make that distinction, and if you're going to side with one side, I can sort of see why James would go the other way. Yeah, I I mean, I think the period, what it was, there's, elements of hard house in it so it was more that end of the trancey yeah. sound but it's one of those you know when clubs cross over into the mainstream there's uh, recently had it with um young mcvicker you know legitimate house track uh, he's a superb producer but he's just had this monster hit and like quite a few people on the house scene are like oh well yeah it's not real house you know like, well it was before it was massive and now it's massive that doesn't stop it being real it's just lots of people have bought it and uh, honestly for me lots of people buying something and the fact that it gets played by djs like me in mainstream town center places that perhaps people well no definitely some people sneer at doesn't diminish from what the actual track starts out as just because it's popular don't mean it's no good uh, I, I can understand you know why james thinks that but yeah as i say i will smash up his cafe <laughs> it feels like a slightly harsh criticism to say there's not enough bass in it it's a bit like saying yeah. i don't like beaming rhapsody because there's not enough trombone in it <laughs> you know sounds great on my sound system anyway on the second drop the bass particularly i think on the second drop it's only very slightly different but then it's just got a bit more anyway music is subjective and it's not like a bad song's one no no a classic track has won because in first place Comfortably ahead, actually, earning three points the 1970s. It's all right now by three. So, Mamoubal says, I remember my dad having the single for all right now, stereotype there, with mouthful of grass on the B-side. 
One of my first memories of using a turntable, the vinyl was battered and crackled through it all, so it sounded weird when I listened to it on a normal recording. Asta says, there is nothing extraneous in this song, even with all the repetitions of the title. It's tight. It's pure anthem rock. It may have only taken them 15 minutes to write it, but I heard an old interview with Elton John on Sunday where he said it took him only 15 minutes to write the music for your song. And Alex says, it's the sandstorm of its genre. There's something about it that elevates it so way above other tracks of its ilk. Only two things made me waver about it. Firstly, the overfamiliarity that you all cited. And secondly, somewhere in Britain, there's some bloke who's grumpily sat through all these podcasts, perhaps a family member listens, and heard this, and their ears are pricked up, and they've muttered, brackets, adopts multi-Python-type Yorkshire accent, I've no idea why, close brackets, at last some proper music. <laughs> it is very much the rock said it must have been love of its genre. I, would say. <laughs> I was going to sound so old here, but the person's talking about the crackle of vinyl that then when they heard it without that crackle of vinyl, I think a lot of us can relate to something like that, a tape where it just wasn't quite right. Or I had a Bond the Bass album that skipped. And when I bought the CD that didn't skip, it's only skipped on one track. I'm like, oh, this is broken. No, no. The version that I had on vinyl was knackered. I've got tapes of Waves where I listen to the track without the MC on it. And I'm like, well, this is missing that bloke going ha ha he he over the top or whatever. I just think that time and place that, you know, when you are familiar with that tune, maybe you had it on a cassette where you recorded it. Simon Mayer was doing the introduction. I can think of four examples of that. Um, Three with a stick and one with a skip. So I always think there's going to be a skip towards the end of Little Willie by The Sweet. And I'm still waiting for the stick on Joe Cocker's With a Little Help from My Friends, Jimi Hendrix, Voodoo Child, um, Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crypt Kickers Monster Mash. It still sounds weird they don't have the stick. I can't watch Star Wars without there being an MFI in a Country Life Butter advert in the middle of it because I watched it hundreds of times because we taped it off ITV. So there are bits that come in Star Wars where I'm expecting it to stop and there to be an MFI advert. So I think there's a lot to be said for they could do versions with contemporary adverts at the time included and broadcast them on TV and people would go nuts for that because yeah, I don't want Kevin Bacon selling me a mobile phone, but show me toy adverts from the 1980s in the middle of a Star Wars. I'll pay extra. Shall we look at the master scoreboard? There are some changes to the master scoreboard subtle changes but changes nonetheless so still in last place but actually technically dropping from fifth equal last week to sixth this week 1960s one point dropping from four to five we have the 2010s two points going up from fifth equal last time to fourth position this time with three points we have the 2000s Bit of a change of the top three. So down one to number three, the 1990s with five points. Up one to number two, the 1970s with seven points, but still comfortably ahead, five points ahead with 12 points, the 1980s. And I have a hunch the 1980s are going to have a fairly easy ride in our next episode. And on that cliffhanger... We'll say goodbye for now and we'll see you in a few days' time. Goodbye.